The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. God has answered that urgent cry and pointing as his, as King forever, the Son of David, the Christ, the Messiah, and it's his word we receive with his blessing this morning. So let's worship him as we receive that word. This is on page 810 if you're using the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, as those, those helpless ones, the blind, the deaf, the needy, they looked to you and they cried out, Jesus, Son of, uh, Son of David, have mercy upon us. We look to you in need of your mercy this day. We know, O oh Lord God, that these words before us will do nothing to help us. They'll only condemn us unless you come and you bless us. Indeed, come, O oh Lord, we pray. Open, uh, we pray. Open our blind eyes and our deaf ears to see and to hear, to see you, to hear your wonderful voice uh, speaking to us and leading us into your truth. Bless us as we, we, we receive your word this morning. May we do so unto the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I was thinking about the words before us this morning, I thought back to an experience I had way back in my college days at San Diego State University, a time when I was walking across campus on my way to class, noticed that there were tables, folks manning tables with some literature on those tables. I wondered if maybe it was Christian ministry. Well, as I came near, I discovered that it was the total opposite of that. It was the Atheist Society on campus. I was a bit taken back by that. I knew there were atheists out there, but I never witnessed them so actively proselytizing their beliefs. And as I uh, looked at the, 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 uh, the uh, information, they were kind enough to be offering gospel uh, tracts for their lack of faith, lack of belief, the way we Christians offer gospel tracts. I noticed that uh, the one that was sort of displayed front and center was entitled, if I remember correctly, it was entitled, The Unpleasant Personality of Jesus Christ. Not enough for them to just simply to set forth a kind of philosophical argument for the, uh, the fact that there's no God. They had to show what a terrible person, what an unpleasant personality was that of Jesus Christ, what annoying person he was. And as I read that pamphlet a bit, I noted that the the words before us this morning, at least some of the words, were kind of presented as as Exhibit A, proof of our Lord's unpleasant personality. I mean, come on, right? To to simply look at a woman with with lust in the heart, something that every guy does, something that harmless, are you really going to deem that a, a sin worthy of suffering in hell? 
And as I think back on that experience, think back on their thinking, I thought how powerfully that illustrates the contrast between faith and unbelief this morning. Yes, the unbeliever hates these words, hates the one who spoke these words. We hear these words this morning and we respond by saying, what a blessed, wonderful Savior and Lord. There is one to whom I want to surrender my trust and my obedience. There's one to whom I will surrender even my heart. As many of us were reminded this past week at family camp, the heart, which includes the mind and the desires and the will. There's the one to whom I want to surrender all this. Is that your response this morning, dear Christian, as you hear these words? Will that be your response? That's the kind of impact that the Lord would desire to have this text have upon us this morning, and we praise God for it because that happens because of what this text reveals about him, about Christ, about his person, his work, about his kingdom, and about who we are as those who belong to him. This is part of Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew's message that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of God. He's the one who brings the kingdom and who brings us into his kingdom as we receive him by faith. Our message this morning is this, that the person and the kingdom of Christ, our Savior and our Lord, are revealed in this, his word regarding adultery in the heart. And as we consider that word this morning, we have just two, two points, two things which we note regarding our, words, our Lord's word regarding adultery in the heart. We're going to look at the, uh, the greatness of the revelation and then the radical response called for by the greatness of the revelation. So note first then, the greatness of our Lord's revelation regarding adultery in the heart. The greatness of the revelation. As we've seen in one sense here, Jesus is bringing no new revelation. That's to say that, that Jesus, as we've, we've rightly uh, been reminded Jesus does not do away with the moral law, but this is part of Matthew's revelation of who he is. This is part of Matthew's gospel uh, of Jesus. This word is a great word because it comes from him, and he is the great one, the Christ. The value of Moses' words was that in they served that, that, that greater purpose of revealing that one who by virtue of his greater person and work would come. And he would, in that sense, speak a far greater word than the 10 words of Moses on the mountain. Again, this does not mean that Jesus does away with the moral law. We see in verse 27 that he, he recites verbatim, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the 10 commandments, those words of Moses, you shall not commit adultery. And clearly Jesus is citing those words not for the purpose of saying that the commandment no longer applies quite the opposite. Consider his words in verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is not changing the law. This is simply reminding God's people that, that his law always pertained to the heart, not only to external conduct. God was always interested in the heart. The law called for purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, the law called, called for wholehearted love for God and for our fellow 
man, this is true with all of the commandments, and certainly it's true with regards to the seventh commandment. The well-known sin of David comes to mind, right? Think of 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Every Jew should have known very well that David's sin began in the way in which he looked upon Bathsheba. No doubt it began even before that. But David broke the commandment by where he allowed his thoughts to go when he, when he saw Bathsheba, how he, he set his desire upon her. He looked upon her with lustful intent. He willed, he chose to commit adultery with her. Before ever coming into contact with her, he already committed adultery in her, with her in his heart. And so our Lord's words here were not new in that regard. Now, on the other hand, we have to note the, the way in which he speaks to the judgment which that sin deserves. And we remember that the Old Covenant law, it did not, commit, it did not prescribe stoning for those who committed adultery only in the heart, but not outwardly. Such, such private sins, if detectable, detectable at all, were certainly not punished with capital punishment under Moses. So I think there's also, we need to note that, that greaterness of the revelation in that Jesus shows us that these sins of the heart, and indeed sins of the tongue, as we saw last time, they, they warrant judgment even greater than the loss of one's life in this world. Last time it was with, was with respect to the sixth commandment, verse 22, here with respect to the seventh, adultery in the heart. Jesus here brought into view the judgment of that, that coming day when the Lord will come and he will, will bring to light every sin, even those committed in the secret places down deep in the heart where only God sees, and he will give them all what they truly Deserve. Note that both in verses 28 and 29, he says, it's, it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, this would not be happy news for us this morning if this were not part of that revelation of that one, that one who, as we saw back in 517, the one who came to fulfill the law. We saw it in his baptism, chapter 3, verse 15, that, that he came to fulfill all righteousness How important is it for us, dear Christians, to remember that this morning? How many souls have taken these words before us this morning and and removed them from the gospel grace context? And they've, they've lived in hopeless despair. They've lived in nothing but fear of judgment and condemnation. Is it true of you this morning? Never forget that first purpose of the law, that purpose to reveal your sin, but to, in doing so to drive you to Christ, to drive you into the arms of that one in whom you are forgiven and by whose righteousness you are counted righteous before God by grace through faith in him. And indeed, even in speaking this truth regarding the seventh commandment, we do well to remember even in speaking these words, Jesus was, was working out that perfect righteousness which we need to stand before our God. We could see this on many levels, I think as, as illustrated by that, the, the, those atheists at San Diego State. Jesus was willing to speak this kind of truth even though he would face the ridicule of a world, a world which would hate him for that truth. They hated God's law and they hated him, the one who embodied that, that law and who spoke the law perfectly. 
some time back, a good friend of mine pointed out that this action of Jesus speaking these words were what was self-sacrificial. Jesus uh, spoke these words as part of that activity of doing what we read about in the Gospel of John. John chapter 7, Jesus speaks of how he testified. He was testifying of the world that its works are evil. John 7, verse 7, Jesus He gave that testimony at a very great cost. They would do much more than simply write nasty pamphlets about uh, his unpleasant personality. They would take him and they would nail him to a cross. They would crucify him. Jesus was, was willing to be so hated by the world for us. And so the very act of Jesus speaking these words was a step on that journey which would end at a cross And the righteousness of that journey was substitutionary and saving. Thus, even this speech act of speaking these words was part of the obedience of our Savior, obedience unto death, the death of the cross. And not only did he face the hatred of the world, of course, he faced the wrath of God in our place. We are not condemned by these words this morning because Jesus was condemned in our place. The very judgment, the very hell of which he warns in this text, he spoke these words knowing that he himself would face that judgment at the cross for us. And he did so as the one who fulfilled the law, the one who never once committed the sin of of adultery in the heart, much less externally. Knowing all that he did, not only in his outward actions and his speech, but even in his heart, he was the one who loved God and loved us, loved us with perfect purity of heart. And not only was he crucified for us, but he was raised from the dead. Matthew's gospel will show us that in the resurrection, all authority is given to him. And here again, I believe the greatness of the revelation before us this morning is here shown in the way it points to that authority which, which would become his, which has become his because of his finished work. That includes the administration of the law, its demands, the judgment it brings upon disobedience. It all comes through his mediation, his lordship. We've rightly pointed out that that Jesus corrected significant misuses, misinterpretations, misunderstandings of the law of Moses. But we know that Jesus came as the one who was more than merely the interpreter of Moses. No, Jesus, he came as the greater. He came as the new Moses, the greater than Moses. And I think that greaterness of Jesus is reflected in these words which begin our text and which we see several times in this broader section. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, I say to you. The important thing here is not only what was being said, but the one who was saying it. These words are not only about what Moses said, but they're about what Jesus said, who Jesus is. Again, the judgments meted out according to those Those old covenant penal sanctions, those were only types of that far greater judgment which will one day come. But here's the important point. It will come at the hand of the great one, the Lord Jesus, not Moses, but Christ. He is that one. He is that man appointed by God, the one who will come and judge the world in righteousness. And what good news that is if you belong to to him, because the one who is the, the righteous judge of all of the earth, the only one who in the end will, will be able to judge, he's that very one who is your advocate 
with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the one who who covers over all of your sins and presents you as faultless before the Father. And that great day when he comes again as the judge for us, more than a judgment event, that will be the great salvation event, the the day in which we are ushered into his kingdom in glory. You see, if we understand these words this morning, if we hear these words in that gospel context, then yes, then we respond by saying, what a wonderful, what a blessed Savior is this one, Jesus Christ. I want to surrender to him everything. There's the one I want to trust. There's the one I will obey. And you will respond with a zeal to remove any hindrance from such trust and obedience. And that brings us to our second point this morning. The second thing we note about the the person in the kingdom of Christ here in revealed in this his word regarding adultery in the heart. Yes, it is a great revelation. And secondly, we see its call for a radical response. Just listen again to his words in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Jump down to verse 30, the parallel words. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it Away, And both verses end again with those identical words, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now there is hyperbole here. This is exaggeration, exaggeration to make the point. Jesus was using here, as as one commentator points out, a shocking but well-recognized metaphor of self-mutilation. Jesus used it, according to this writer, in order to show, quote, the radical implications of his interpretation of the law, which, of course, was his true interpretation of of the law. But it brought radical implications. More generally, I would say that these words are intended to shock us with a true sense of the greatness of Christ, the greatness of his kingdom. Yes, the radical implications of coming to see that. When I was in Africa, we would often be uh, asked about questions about America. They had this sort of idea that America was such a wonderful place, so much wealth and greatness. I'd always try to kind of downplay that and say, you know, America's not all that great. We have our problems, too. But there was one occasion as I was out sitting in the village, sitting under the tree with some men, and they were, they were again, speaking of how they'd love to go to a, to, uh, to America. Ah, uh, Pastor, America. you take us also to America. And the Lord brought to my mind the passage before us this morning, and I asked him the question, well, what would you be willing to give up to go to America? Would you, would you, would you be willing to have your eye plucked out? Would you willing, be willing to have a hand cut off? And of course, they uh, were horrified by the suggested, uh, suggestion and responded with an emphatic, no, we would never do that. And I assured them, you've answered wisely, America's not, gr- not, not that great. It's not worth losing an eye to be able to go there. But I opened up and I read this text. And I said, do you see what the Lord is teaching? He's teaching there is a place, there is a kingdom so great that it would be worth even having your eye gouged out to go there, even worth having your, your hand cut off. Again, this is a revelation of, yes, such a wonderful place, the revelation of such a great and glorious person, one who is of such infinite worth that it would be worth giving up anything to come to possess him. 
And yes, there is a radical call connected to seeing that. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. That is to say, give up anything which is standing in the way of your your possessing Christ and his kingdom. We see that this radical call, it comes with a great warning, doesn't it? What's the alternative? See, mere self-mutilation, losing an eye or losing a limb, that, that may seem radical, but compare that with having your entire body thrown into hell. And friends, that's what you're choosing, by the way, if you are not following Christ. I hope you're listening to this this morning. If there's anyone here who's an unbeliever, one who's never trusted Christ and turned to him in true repentance and faith, without Christ, that's what you are bound for, an eternity of judgment under, or eternity of separation under the judgment of God. And the question that comes to us, what would you pay? What would you be willing to give up in order to, to enter into the kingdom which God has promised for his people? Now, to answer that question is to explore the great paradox of the Christian faith. Because on the one hand, we know the answer is that you pay nothing at all. In fact, it's, it's something of such great, infinite worth that nothing you could ever give could possibly ever earn your way in. You could cut off every limb. You could sell every organ in your body. None of it would ever be enough. And to think that wonder of wonders here, God gives it freely to all who will receive it, purchased by the precious blood of the only one who can save us from hell, a free gift given to all who enter in by grace through faith alone. And friends, if you've never done so, he invites you to come, trust in him, enter in, receive that free gift, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, paradoxically, when we do come to Christ, we understand that we give up everything. No, not as a means of earning our way into the kingdom, but to embrace Christ truly is to be embraced by Christ, Christ, by his spirit, the very spirit that gives us that true faith. By his spirit, we are united to Christ. We are united to the whole Christ. We embrace Christ for all that he is, the prophet, the priest, the king, the savior, the Lord. And in seeing this, we, we, we have faith. Faith says, as it were, I surrender everything to him. Not that we ever do so perfectly. We never perfectly surrender everything in this life because sin remains in us. We will always struggle against it. This side of glory, we will never ever perfectly rid ourselves of lust or any other sin. Indeed, everything that we do is tainted with sin. And yet the work of the Spirit and that one who truly believes is a work wherein we are given that new heart, that new will. We will to do his will. Isn't that true? I mean, principally, it's illustrated, demonstrated by the fact that, with, that to come to Christ, we are, we are called to surrender our pride, surrender our self-trust, and cast ourselves completely on the mercy of him, Jesus Christ. That's not easy to do. It's impossible to do. And it's terribly painful to do, isn't it? the scribes and the Pharisees to forsake their false righteousness for the sake of Christ. Yes, that would have been tantamount to gouging out an eye or cutting off a limb, but that's what they were required 
to do. They were to, to see it, to see their own sense of righteousness as a, as a great obstacle in the way of their entering in to the kingdom. They were to see it as something of, yes, an infected eye. Or you can imagine, imagine a, a limb so riddled with gangrene that it had to be simply cut off and remo- removed lest it spread and infect the entire body. Jesus was saying, gouge it out, cut it off. And, you know, lest we think that that was a cost just too great for any Pharisee to overcome by the grace of God. We do well simply to remember the Apostle Paul. Remember that, that righteousness which he had pursued and, and attained as a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. And coming to Christ, what did Paul do? Well, he came to regard that righteousness, it and everything else, as as, as worthless, even as rubbish, he wrote, because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. He wrote of Christ in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. And we all understand that what Paul had gained was infinitely greater than anything, everything that he had lost. He'd gained Christ. He'd gained all the benefits of his union with Christ, justification, righteousness imputed to him by faith, uh, the forgiveness of his sins, sanctification, a life of walking with Christ, learning obedience of Christ, Uh, Without these words, yes, these words regarding adultery and all of the law would be nothing, nothing but a yoke of slavery. But we receive these words this morning. We receive them from the hand of the same one who, who, who spoke these words, which we'll come to later, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. The one who says, come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in a sense, true faith, Christian discipleship, it's, it's not easy. It's painful. It requires work. It's, it's a life of repentance. But that's a wonderful life because repentance, as we were so well reminded this past week, always goes together with faith, repentance is wonderful because of him, the one to whom we turn in repentance and faith. We turn to Christ, we embrace him, we receive and we rest in him. And he is the, the one who deals with us, yes, in such gentleness, lowliness of heart. We take his yoke upon us and we learn from him. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. We all need to hear it. Maybe you need to hear that because maybe you are one who struggles with the sin of adultery in the heart. As a true believer, you are, you are not, not content simply to give yourself over to such sin. No, you understand that adultery in the heart is adultery. It's sin. You don't cherish it. You hate it. Indeed, you ought to hate it. That's part of true repentance. And surely these words before us this morning call all of us to see this sin and, and any other sin for what it is, something which is horrible, offensive, so contrary 
to God, as our catechism rightly reminds us in its teaching on repentance. We, we have grief and hatred of our sin. But that grief and that hatred of, of sin, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> that grief and hatred of sin, is, is, it flows out of an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. We, we are to see our sin in the light of God's mercy and God's grace. And there's so much we could say this morning by way of, of, of application. You know, the, the, the greatness, the, the, the greaterness of the law of God is surely, surely seen in, in, in that as we look to Christ and we see that it was, it was spoken by the great one, the one who was keeping the law for us perfectly. And I think the best thing that we can do is by way of strategy, again, in, in terms of the battle against the flesh, the sin of lust or any other sin, is to look to Christ and think about him. This morning, I want you to, to think about our Lord, particularly in the way in which he looked upon women. Just think about the women who came into his life, whom he encountered in his ministry. What about that that sinful, that immoral woman of Luke chapter 7? You remember that one who came with that that alabaster flask of expensive ointment and she she broke that and she poured it out on the feet of Jesus and she was weeping and she was on her knees before him and she was wiping his feet with her tears and and with her hair and with that anointment with which she... she, uh, anointed his feet, kissing the feet of Jesus. How did Jesus look upon that woman? Or think about John chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, the one to whom Jesus revealed his knowledge of her immoral life. She'd been with five different husbands and now was living with a man who was not her husband. How did Jesus look upon her as he was offering that living water and even revealing himself as the great one, the Messiah? How did Jesus look upon her? What about those prostitutes who came and believed in him? We'll read about them when we reach chapter 21 of this gospel. How did Jesus look upon those ones? Do you think that Jesus looked upon them? Do you think he looked upon any of these women with lustful intent? Did he commit adultery with them in his heart? Well, if you're a true believer, then the very thought strikes you as something appalling horrifying, even blasphemous, and you say, no, no, a thousand times, no. This morning, I'm, I'm addressing a very specific sin there because it kind of is the one that comes out in the text, but let's all apply these words more generally in any and every way in which we see that our failure to love Christ and to love one another perfectly with his perfect, pure love. Man, how does how does our Lord look upon those women who, per, those women who per, perhaps at times when you're out and about, you allow your eyes to wander, you allow your thoughts to go places where you know they ought not to go, or perhaps when you're on the internet and you click that site which you know you ought not to visit. How does our look, Lord look upon those women? He looks upon them with, with pure, holy, undefiled love, and compassion from his pure, holy, undefiled heart. And that's the way he looks upon you. That's the way he looks upon you, even in those moments when you commit that, that dreadful sin of lust in the heart, though it grieves his heart that you do so. And friends, as we think about that, 
if such pure-hearted love and grace does nothing for you in terms of breaking your own heart unto Christ in repentance, then, then I'm, I'm fearful for the state of your soul this morning. The words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 comes to mind. Examine yourselves to see whether you are of the faith. But another text comes to mind. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, better things, things that belong to salvation. Brothers and sisters, this morning, by the grace of Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, that very Spirit that has united us to him by faith and in whom we have his life, let us lay hold of those better things. Let us rid ourselves of sinful lust and every other sin, yes, that sin that exists in the heart, and let us walk in his love, not that we will be perfect. Repentance. Repent today and you will find you the need to repent again tomorrow. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That is the Christian life in apprehension of God's mercy. Indeed, by God's grace, let us, let us look unto Christ. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened as we marvel at the wonder of his grace, how much he loves us. And let, uh, let that empower us then as we go forth, empowered, constrained, compelled by his love by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit by whom that love was shed abroad in our hearts, we are told. And so, yes, like an offensive eye or hand, let us gouge out, let us cut off, as it were, anything which is contrary to Christ, contrary to his kingdom, contrary to that, his perfect love. The unpleasant personality of Jesus Christ. How laughable. How sad, as I think back on that experience, I wish I'd read that tract and said, you know, it's just obvious reading your tract that you don't know this one. You don't know a thing about him. You don't know him as I do. We respond and we say, oh, I wish you'd come to know him. He is a wonderful savior. He's one filled with such love, such grace. Oh, friends, not only in our hearts, but as we go forth to such a world deceived, lost in sin, and deceived and enslaved to a, a, an idea of love that is not love at all. Let us go forth and show them by our love, by our lives, what a blessed, what a wonderful Savior in whom we trust, whom we serve. Let's pray together. Loving Father, how we help uh, pray that you would come to us and help us this day, help us to do so. We would long to do so more and more. Indeed, we long, O Lord, to know that great love in all of its fullness. We long for that day in which we will see Christ and we will be like him and love perfectly as you love us in him. We long for the kingdom of glory when our thoughts and our desires will be perfect and will be pure. Lord God, until then, would you grant that we might live in that blessed hope. Sanctify us, O Lord God. By this, your word this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to die into our sin, every sin. Yes, even adultery in the heart. Help us to grow in your grace more each day until that great day. Hear us, Lord God, for we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.